Welcome to Insights for Manufacturing, a podcast that supports the UK manufacturing sector. Hosted by Jeff Beecham, the manufacturer's recruiter. Welcome to Insights for Manufacturing. In an interesting turn of events, this episode will be hosted by myself, John Cox, and none other than our very own Jeff Beecham will be under the spotlight. Jeff, welcome. Hi, John. It's good for us to get together, particularly now we're joint venture partners as well. So it's uh, these leadership podcasts are, are very exciting. I'm looking forward to giving you a grill in here. It's normally <laughs> the other way around. So uh, I hope you're sitting comfortable. I am indeed. I am indeed. So let's jump in. Jeff, I've known you for a while now, but for those who've not met you or don't know you, who is Jeff Beecham? Great question. I suppose I've been finding that out over the last uh, probably 20 years or so. <laughs> yeah, I, I I live in Birmingham. I'm 54 next year. This is the, the 25th year of my recruitment career. I'm a family family man, uh, live with my wife, Sharon, and, uh, and Chris Beecham, uh, who works for me. And yes, I, I think they say recruitment is... Uh, lots of ups and downs, champagnes and razor blades. So I suppose I must be partly mad to still be, you know, operating within recruitment after nearly 25 years. But it's it's what I enjoy doing, uh, being around people. So, um, so yeah. Some would say partly mad. Some would say maybe a little bit more. Maybe fully. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, tell me the interesting facts about you that not a lot of people know. Oh, Interesting fact. Crikey. There's probably loads, but I, I, I uh, yeah, it's not something I, I think about that often. Well, here's one that, that very, very few people will know. And and that is that my my first name isn't actually Jeff. It's Jefferson. So for whatever reason, my dad chose to name me after uh, a, an American president. And it, it always annoyed me at school because the teachers used to call me Jefferson. And it was like a long, <laughs> it was like a long name. So I, I sort of ditched that uh, pretty much after primary school. And yeah, uh, other than, you know, if you to have a look at my passport. Um, yeah, mo- most people wouldn't wouldn't know that. You still get called Jefferson by the parents when you're in trouble no my dad well I, i'm never in trouble with my dad usually anyway uh mum's no longer with us but yeah up until seven seven years ago when she passed away if she was a little bit miffed at me for whatever reason uh even in even in my adult life yes i would get that jefferson <laughs> uh in in a bristolian accent so yeah n- nobody calls me jefferson i don't answer to jefferson um, so if anybody wants a response from me, definitely do not call me that. What about Mr. President? <laughs> no, call somebody else. If you've got a, if you've got a major disaster, don't call me unless <laughs> it's a hire, a major hiring disaster at executive level. Uh, then of course, call me. Okay. So you're not going to be the president. That's fine. Just so we're clear. Absolutely right. So what made you specialize, decide to specialize in senior executive search in the manufacturing and engineering sectors? Yeah, um, well, it, it's really been a, a a sort of continuation of of my recruitment career, John. To be fair, I mean, I I started off uh, way back in the last millennium in in 1999 in my first recruitment role, dealing with shop floor temporary labour. Uh, that's where I sort of cut my teeth in manufacturing and engineering, and also distribution. Um, and I spent probably six or seven years in that space and then progressed to uh supplying engineers then moved into permanent permanent placements um then into the sort of lower level management roles 
Um, and then I moved to a a, a search firm. Uh, my search firm was probably about 10 years ago. Uh, yeah, 10 years ago. Um, and I've been operating in, at, at that sort of level ever since, sort of managerial and executive recruitment. And it's an interesting question why. It, it, it was part of the continuation of that journey. I think I always wanted to get to executive recruitment level. And I'm so glad that I made that sort of jump, if you like. It's it's a totally different uh, skill set. Um, I've been headhunting now for about the last sort of seven years. Um, the headhunting process is is totally different. But I I really love the fact that I started out at shop floor recruitment level, because now when I'm talking to leaders about some of the challenges that they have in their factories, um, I understand it at a level where, you know, I know the roles that their managers are doing. I also understand and have recruited for the roles that their managers staff, i.e. the engineers and shop floor supervisors have been doing. And I know all about the processes on the shop floor as well. So I, I think, putting all of that together um i, th I think gives me a, a a very well rounded appreciation of how factories operate and you, you don't often get that uh with some consultants or search firms that are that have only ever been used to boardroom recruitment or you know the sort of language and processes that you normally would discuss in a conversation about leadership um that's the different skill sets that's a real rich depth of knowledge there isn't it real a real quality of understanding on a deeper level than you'd normally expect to find yeah i think so and that's um yeah i, I think that's what you know one of the value adds of of you know clients that um that partner with me for their you know for their searches is, is that sort of deep experience and understanding really so what does it take to be a success in executive search and, and what does success look like to you oh that's always a good question you know I'd, i've seen that very question on linkedin so many times over the years um you know the top seven things of successful people um what makes somebody successful well in 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 true jeff style success for me is um first and foremost being able to provide the winning solution for my clients but really success is about how I go about that and the long-term um, benefits and difference that I've made to my clients' businesses and also to the candidates that I, that I interact with. Um, and, and from a business person's point of view, you know, success for me has never, ever been about how much turnover, how much money can I make? The size of a commission check it's never been about that it's been about being able to sleep in my bed at night knowing that i've done the absolutely best job that i could i've got the right results for the stakeholders the, the clients and candidates regardless of whether that was a fairly pain-free search and they are quite rare or whether it's been one that's been a real real challenge um it, it's it's about you know, reflecting and really feeling, and I'm sincere in that, it's really feeling the impact that I've had on 
the candidate's career, their sort of position in life and the things that they want to achieve through through their work and, and really making a difference to the client's business because, that you know, for them to partner with me in the first place, something's either gone quite wrong in the past or they need, uh, you know, specific help from candidates from outside of the business that can either turn around their organization or enable them to make that step up to the next level. And I think it's easy for any recruiter to, to, to sit back and think, well, yeah, place that person, place that person. I've dealt with this business. I've dealt with that business. And because it's quite a frantic environment, sometimes um, I think a lot of recruiters don't always give themselves the credit that they deserve and maybe don't reflect as much on what they've done, how they did it, and, you know, the happy smiling faces that they get each and every time they go back to their clients and candidates to check on progress and, you know, how are things going? Oh, well, great, Jeff. It's amazing. I'm so glad that we worked together on this role. You know, I've got the the role that I'd wanted for a few years. You know, clients come back to you. So periodically, I I, I actually like to reflect backwards on what I've done, who I've done it for, and to follow companies. You know, I, I, I quite often um follow clients from the sidelines as well as as well as speaking to them and you know catching up with them periodically. I will I, I will always be watching clients, how they're getting on, are they winning awards, are you know, are they growing? And I and I genuinely feel that I've had a a small part to play, albeit in the background for that organization. But every time I hear about something amazing at one of my clients, I just get that feeling of satisfaction and and worth and value that what I've chosen to do with my career is is having an impact. Um and, and for me that's what success looks like. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love the human element. I love it. it's about people. It's about connections. It's about doing the right thing the right way to get the right results, which we talk about a lot of the time. I was talking with one of your uh, clients just last week, actually, and they've known you for many, many years. And the way he was talking about you, it was almost like he was talking about a friend, someone that he genuinely enjoyed talking to and working with and cheekily picked your brain for information and help and support outside of the, the recruiting element to kind of really get more value from the relationship because he deeply respected what you did and, and how you do it. So I love that real kind of bond and relationship that, that you're building there inside and outside of kind of the working environment of some of these people. So what I'd like to ask you, so without giving away too much, don't give away your special sauce recipe. <laughs> how do you match candidates and clients so successfully? Okay. Well, there's a, there's well, there's a too much special sauce. Yes. So they've got, if people want to work with you, if they want all of this, they've got to, they've got to buy into Jeff Beach. Not going to give it all away for free. That's, that's for sure. Well, well, I think I, I always go back to recruitment shouldn't be difficult. It shouldn't be rocket science and it isn't rocket science. Um, but there, there, there are a number of, I, I think non-negotiables that you need to have as part of the criteria part of the process, part of the relationship um, when you're working for a client on a, on a search. But this really, I think, should be, you know, applicable to any sort of recruitment in any industry at any level. So I, 
I, I really have a, a huge bee in my bonnet about understanding the brief. I've spoken about this before on, on LinkedIn. Um, and so for me, understanding is, is such a key part of the process. You know, anybody could receive a job description from a, from a business, have a look at it, go onto a database, match a few keywords, Bob's your uncle. You've got, you know, you've got a few people churned out on the, on the Boolean search that, that a lot of recruiters will do. Um, and, and, you know, to a degree that, that works. But bearing in mind that the, the recruitment that I do these days, so it's managerial and executive recruitment. So quite often these search assignments, the, these mandates that I'm given by my clients could be literally business critical. So, it, it, you know, for me, it's all about not cutting any corners. It's about understanding your client before you've even uh you know discussed what the solution might be it's no good just agreeing to to work with them and, and agreeing to um yes i can i can, I can search for that person for you well you you got to pick behind that to begin with and, and understand the situation that they're in is it the real situation because uh, you know there are organizations out there and you know leaders in organizations that will not tell you the full story but really that you know that's a false it's a false economy because unless as as the executive recruitment partner to that business unless you fully understand the reasons why they're going to market in the first place um and and unless you've got a warts and all appreciation of not just the you know the key criteria of what what they want what they're looking for but again it's it's understanding the impact that that person that you need to go and search for is going to have on that business on the specific team that that person's going to go into um you've got to you know it's it's not all about skills matching with leadership it's it's very much often about you know leadership style company culture you know what is the mission what is the what are the values of that business what is what is the vision of the of the ceo so it's really a, a mixture of all those things and that might sound very generic and and quite easy quite simple in you know a, a, as a sort of overview but it really is about not just being happy with a with a 50 percent match a 60 percent match a 70 percent match um i think there's a lot of mediocrity in recruitment and i've also seen it on the client side as well you know um, some businesses will hire because they're they're panicked into making a hire for different reasons and that's probably you know a, a good topic for another podcast at some point um but i think you've got to you've got to stick to your process you've got to let the process run for the duration and with what i do it's normally a, a six-week process from commencement of the assignment to me delivering a shortlist of, of CVs to the client. So there's no good cutting corners. You've got to get in and under the skin of that client and, and almost um, find out all the, all the dirty business, you know, what things have been going wrong. What are you trying to achieve? What's the, what's the quickest route for you to get to your next stage with the business? And then, and then start looking at, you know, this is what you've told me that you want. 
Um, but then asking them some, you know, fairly awkward or difficult questions at times, you know, you're, you're telling me you want X, Y, Z, but what about, what about this? You've explained mm. that you've had these issues. Well, how about this? How about that? It's, it, you know, it's not just accepting carte blanche, what your client is telling you that they need. And it might well be that they're absolutely hundred percent right. That's not always the case. Um, so it really is about listening that's critical with this because, you know, I might have an idea as to what the client might need. They're telling me what they might need, but it's also about listening for what they're not saying. You know, sometimes you've got to do a little bit of reading between the lines. Um, and you'll know this from coaching, John. <laughs> you know, it's not all about uh, what's what's in the current um, line of communication. It, it's well, what's not being said and why is that not being said? I would have that's expected where your, that client that's to, where your to depth ask of me. knowledge really comes in. You you, mm. you know what you're looking for. You know the gaps you're looking for. You know what you're not being told as much as what you are being told, which triggers a different line of question and thinking. I've loved talking to you about this before and the fact you you do try to do things differently. Different results are only ever achieved from doing things differently and a different approach and a different way of doing things. Bringing in candidates that bring something different they didn't even realise they needed to the to the role that for me is exciting they know what they expect xyz but you're actually bringing an abc at the same time changing the thinking and looking further ahead maybe than they are in their recruitment process or their company's curve of growth or development you're bringing someone in that can actually change that pretty dramatically i mean that's quite exciting so why do you think your clients choose authentical resourcing for senior candidate placement I, I see this and I see how you do it. And I see the great work you're doing placing the candidates and matching it. But why do you think, so I'm, I'm about to go into the market now. Why would I be choosing you? That's a great question, John. And I, I, I can, I, I can answer that partly from feedback I've had from, from clients. Um, part of the reason why they choose me is because of my depth of experience The you know, the length of time that I've been operating within manufacturing and engineering that's part of the criteria the other criteria and i've been told this on on many many occasions is that people and this this is whether it's a client or a candidate actually you know people um warm to me and and do get that feeling that what i'm saying and the way i'm going about my business and how i'm uh articulating to them and making them feel as though i I not only get what they're trying to achieve and what they're saying, but they, I give them this sense of confidence that I do properly understand their business, the circumstances, and I will not rest until I've delivered on that search assignment for the right reasons. And I'm, I'm pretty, pretty well known for that. People that know me, People that have worked with me in the past as clients or as candidates, people, ex-colleagues that have worked for me uh, or with me in, in recruitment, they'll, they'll tell you a few things about Jeff Beecham. Most of them will be good, <laughs> but they will certainly, um, they will certainly tell you that Jeff wears his heart on his sleeve and he knows his stuff. He knows manufacturing and engineering and yeah, I've got a heart, but I also I, I want to do the right thing that I want to do the things that are going to get the right results in the right time frame for that client, because each client and each client's circumstances are different. Um, 
but I'll be relentless in achieving a you know a successful outcome on the search but what I won't do and I absolutely want to make this clear and people that know me uh will, will absolutely know that I've got to be in my bonnet about this I will not um work on an assignment if I've got to do things that aren't um the right thing I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to cut corners off I'm not going to try and shoehorn people into roles that I don't think are quite right. If I think clients are being unethical, then I will shy away from those as well. You know, this isn't all about money for me. This is my business. I've got a reputation and I'm, I'm fairly outspoken about most things in, in business and most things in life, actually. So no. again, <laughs> <laughs> including including not having anchovies on a pizza john uh just say we'll get to that that's going to be um, more questions later but yeah people people know that i do stick to my values and so i think they like that authenticity about me that was probably the reason that that tipped me over the scales when i was trying to come up with a name for this business four years ago and i was sort of thinking back even back then well what 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 do what have clients thought about me in the past you know they they know they're going to get Jeff. They know what you see is what you get. Um, I'm trustworthy. Um, I operate totally confidentially. I've always got the client's best interest at heart and the candidates. It's not just about a money-making thing. And unfortunately, a lot of people in recruitment see it as a big cash register and, you know, what their, their behaviors or some of their behaviors aren't always aligned to what's best for the client and the candidate. So I, I think that plays a huge, huge part in why businesses like to work with me. Um, I'm, I'm straight talking. I do things for the right reasons. I get results. And I really, really want to, um, I want to sit back after I've delivered that successful search and then be talking to that client for months and years ahead. It's not just a quick win. Um, so yeah, I, I, hopefully that's answered your your question for you. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's it's your values, it's your it's the trust and relationship building that you bring to the table that is yeah. very different. And that for me, I've I've dealt with a lot of recruiters, resources, all as you will, in my time. And the good ones are like gold dust, and there is so much sand out there between it that it's really difficult to to, to pick the good ones out of it. And trust and relationships are really, really important to me. And that's really why the joint venture that we set up recently to, to bring the worlds of executive search and coaching and mentoring together is so exciting. I've been approached before to, 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 to do this sort of thing, but I've never had that connection or that belief in the person I was talking to that it's something that would work, someone with the right morals, doing it the right way. And, you know, we, we keep each other honest, we keep each other on straight, but... I've not seen any hint at all that there's anything but an absolute straight line that you, you work in. And it's always making sure it's the best for the client and, and the best for the candidates. And that for me is what the foundation of it is. So what was your motivation for the, that, that link up that we've, we've started? Yeah, crikey. I mean, it seems like it seems like so long ago, John, um, <laughs> because, you know, we 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 met last year um, on online on LinkedIn, built up a great relationship and we continued talking over a, over a number of months and i'd already had um an appetite for adding 
more services to to the offering of, of authentic resourcing and i've i've thought for many years actually that you know there, there's a there's a there's a fantastic opportunity for search firms and exec coaches to work together more closely i know that they do i know some big search firms have their own you know they have people in there that are coaches as well and they will you know lend that expertise to their clients but for the vast majority of of recruiters out there they will do their thing and their clients have probably got coaches mentors and other service providers and none of it's joined up so if you've got a company if you've got a business that's either broken or it's slipping down and it's going to it's going to go bump at some point or um there are changes transformations restructures growth plans whatever it might be um you know where you've got needs for high end hiring uh you know executive recruitment managerial recruitment but there's also going to be some form of development needs as well i i just i've thought for ages that it just makes sense for businesses to have a a relationship with not just a recruitment business over here and an executive coach over there but let's join this whole thing up so you've got three parties there working in tandem for for the common aim so as you said john it was a no-brainer to to get together with a really good executive coach uh, and mentor and it's it's just really given it's given authentic resourcing the the capability of providing some additional and more structured onboarding for clients and this is within the the authentic resourcing executive platinum service so onboarding yes i've always kept close to candidates and clients uh once that offer's been made through the resignation process through the notice period you know and have regular checkups on day one week one month one and then I'll, I'll keep in contact over a period of months anyway i've always done that and always would but that's not the same as uh taking a coaching and mentoring approach to to onboarding so it's a it's an additional level of uh confidence for the for the clients and for the candidates that they're going to get not just a great service because i always give a great service but they're getting something extra and this is why we've called it executive platinum you know it really is going over and above uh what i think is you know the the norm out there in the industry you know i, I think probably 80 if we use pareto probably 80 percent of successful placements um probably could benefit from a little bit more if if there was a little bit more to give so you know with that bit of uh you know coaching and mentoring um it really is sort of supercharging the the process once that candidate's joined the business and also also you know there's that that sort of option of, of de helping to develop existing board members or or managers within that business so if we've got a client relationship um it's not just about what happens on a search um you know you can you can provide that sort of onboarding expertise but there's also you know there's always development work to be done isn't there john within a business you know so it just made perfect sense it, it was a marriage made in heaven strawberries and cream um pizza and pizza and beer exec recruiting exec search and executive coaching uh why isn't everybody doing it
I, I mean, Jeff, yeah, I love it. it. This goes back into your values, your morals, wanting to add more, wanting to be more and help more at every part of it, at every stage. I know you do a lot of work with, with candidates before they're placed to help them and to help find places for some candidates. Um, I know you like to see them and help with their growth and development. But this is about adding value at every stage, isn't it? It is about before they, they join a company, helping them, making sure they're in the right place and that they're going for the right sort of roles. It's about helping onboard them, which helps them and helps the companies as well to make sure they've got these people coming in and, and they're making decisions and they're able to fire on all cylinders from the first week rather than maybe the first month or the second month. So you get an instant yeah. result from who you're bringing in. They've got that safe space to question and challenge themselves and the business. Because, you know, a lot of us go into a business and we expect to know everything or we expect of ourselves to know everything. Of course, we don't. Yeah. So then when we don't, we tend to shy away from asking those questions for fear of maybe feeling silly or stupid or, or you know, less than what we were hired to be. So having a coach or mentor there in the background helps us to have that part of the onboarding, which massively helps the companies with their retention. And that for me is the other exciting bit, bit here is keeping that candidate growing and developing. You are offering to them a growth package as yep. well as employment and who would not leave a role to jump into a company that's offering that sort of support so you are growing them and you are retaining them and yeah as you said as well not just for the candidates that are coming in it's for the whole board why are we giving preferential treatment to the new person that comes in why isn't everyone having that growth and that that challenge and that space to to be more and to deliver more so it's it's just a natural bedfellow as you say it's it's every part every stage help and support it's the whole life journey of an individual before into the business staying in the business growing through the business running the business and then recruiting back into their role potentially so it, yeah. it all just it's a lovely ecosystem of, of help and support and i think that's what i love it is about helping people what do we do for a living we help people we, we try to solve solutions we try to bring solutions and solve problems what's not to love well, that, that was that was part of I only realized this after we'd been talking for quite some time that, um, you know, one of the main things about your business, your your whole ethos and your why is pretty much the same as mine. We both genuinely, authentically want to make a difference. And that that was when when that penny dropped, I knew you and I were on the on the track of this is going to lead somewhere. Didn't know didn't know what that was at that point, but it just felt like there was great alignment. So, you know, and as, as you said, you know, I'd, I'd had talks with, uh, with a few coaches, exec coaches in the past and that, you know, they're, they're all very good. They're all very nice people, but there was something a little bit extra with you, you know, um, I've been called that often. Sorry. I've been called that often. I'm a little bit extra, <laughs> <laughs> a bit extra. Uh, yeah. Well, is it extra <laughs> or over the top? I don't know. Value add, John, Va let's use value add. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you you know you 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 aligned with 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 my background um the fact that you've you know you've worked for you know industrial businesses manufacturing so understanding that side of things very much whilst you don't you don't necessarily need that to be a coach i wanted to align myself with an exec coach that came with that added extra that's what allows the mentoring side to be so deep yeah having that's as i've mentioned before 20 plus years of board level experience and the vast majority of that has been in manufacturing companies. Yeah. Um, and I've worked my way through those companies up through to direct shipping to board level 
and running them. So I, pretty much like yourself, I understand from the, the grassroots where some of yeah. these problems are happening. I've, I've, I've fallen over myself in those places. I've got up from those places. I've, I've jumped forward from those places. So you can talk a different language and ask different questions, knowing how to dig to get the right sort of answers and solutions from people. Yeah. And, you know, UK manufacturing at the moment, it's going through some 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 tough times or exciting times. What would you say? Well, I think a bit of both. Um, I mean, you know, most people will be aware of what we've what we've just come through in terms of Brexit, COVID. We got the war in Ukraine. We've had materials prices going through the roof, energy costs, skills shortages. You name it, it's been thrown at UK manufacturing. However, you know, uh, and, and yes, it, it, it's not always uh, a bed of roses, but it's certainly not the picture that you would generally find tuning into mainstream media. Um, so if you're going to watch the news and think you, you've got a good uh, measuring stick of where UK manufacturing is, uh, you're probably not in the right world because mainstream media will only really focus on the big stories, um, the really, really huge employers, because they like to sensationalize everything. So they're, they're going to want to publicize, you know, the, the bigger companies that, that have got, um, you know, if they're opening a new place, they, they might have thousands of jobs on offer rather than, you know, an SME down the road who's hiring five people, but they only employed 30 in the first place. That to me, that's groundbreaking for that business. But we well, don't get to hear about that. Isn't it? Yeah, they it are is. helping their community in the local as well. It's not just about a national thing. That is those five new people. It's their families. It's the shops and the schools and everything around that whole infrastructure is all growing alongside it. So yeah. every, every success is a success. It is. And, uh, but there's, you know, there's lots of exciting things happening in, in manufacturing at the moment. Um, I mean, yes, we have got a skills shortage, um, but there are some fantastic opportunities uh with apprenticeships we've got degree apprenticeships t levels all all these sort of things um and whilst you know a lot of people are saying we, we haven't got the skills that we need in this country we haven't got enough we haven't got enough apprenticeships coming through or apprentices coming through the message is slowly getting out there uh that we do we do manufacture in the uk um we're actually number eight i think uh, globally in terms of, of, of manufacturing, um, manufacturing output, uh, I'd love us to be a lot higher, but that, you know, that's where we are, but there is a, there's a bit of momentum building now in terms of, uh, addressing this outdated notion of what manufacturing actually is, you know, um, I'm sure if a lot of people went down the pub and asked somebody, you know, what do people do in manufacturing or like, working in a, some dirty, oily, factory somewhere you know but okay there are some processes that that are uh, you know a little bit dirty it's heavy engineering um but a lot of manufacturing these days is is high it's highly advanced there's you know a lot of automated equipment involved and particularly if you went into somewhere like automotive or food manufacturing you could almost eat your sandwiches off the shop floor you know it's it's totally changed um, so there's a lot of opportunity to spread the word, get more youngsters into manufacturing, but also just balancing the, you know, the challenges that the industry has, has faced over the last few years, balancing that with the opportunities that we have. Um, we've got 
a lot of new technologies coming through that have already been in development for a number of years. But, you know, you've got things like artificial intelligence. That's going to be having an even bigger impact on all of us in, in, in no time at all. But the the adoption of AI into manufacturing, it's going to be interesting to see where that's going to lead us, in fact. But we've got we've got AI, we've got automation, we've got robotics. There are other new processes that that have been around for some time that are but that are becoming more mainstream in terms of volume production. Things like additive manufacturing, three D printing. So there's, there's there's loads of new things. There's loads of you know exciting technologies. I mean, for crying out loud, we're you know we're making things in the UK that are going into space. You know the the, the world's changed. It's not just some smog ridden. <laughs> um area where factories are just billowing out loads of smoke and you know the days of the workhouses have gone it's not um, peaky blinders is it it's not peaky blinders wake up people yeah <laughs> you know exactly. ma modern manufacturing is you know is highly skilled in in, mm -hmm. in many respects so you know if, if you're interested in a career uh manufacturing is one of the sectors that that pays more than than quite a few others that you know the wages are good in, in manufacturing at, at shop floor level you know and you don't have to always work in the factory you can become a company director you can own your own business uh you can run teams uh of people so you know if you've got aspirations to be a business leader you can do that in manufacturing you don't have to stay in the shop floor forever so oh there's wonderful opportunities and even with you know after brexit you know that's created a bit of a black cloud for 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 a lot of people. I I actually voted for it, but that was more of a principled thing, uh, and more of a you know we need to be making our own decisions rather than being told what to do by Brussels. Um, but it has created a few bumps in the road, but there are still huge and wonderful opportunities globally for the UK and for UK manufacturing to trade. We need incoming trade, but we need to be exporting more as well. So manufacturing is thriving. It really is. Some companies are struggling. The ones that aren't changing, obviously, they're going to be struggling because for you to get a different result, sometimes you need to change something. But a lot of manufacturing, just, just through the nature of what manufacturers do, manufacturers are innovative. They, uh, they will engineer solutions and they will find a way. So it, it's a thriving industry. It really, really is. And I'm so glad i'm so proud to be part of the uk manufacturing sector through the work that i do the work that i've done for nearly 25 years providing you know shop floor workers in factories and the last sort of 10 years or so you know managerial and leadership candidates into businesses that, that can help those businesses improve get better grow survive in some cases um i'm just doing my little bit in the background but you know you can see the smiles coming on my face just talking about manufacturing i've got a real passion, passion there isn't it, it. The yeah passion is absolutely there. so obviously you know we don't have a crystal ball and we've talked about ai but what other emerging trends do you see that have the potential to kind of change or disrupt the uk market because it is a time of change and and the quicker technology gets quicker technology gets the more advanced it gets the more advanced it gets so it's it is it's you know there's been a massive explosion of ai and and the implementation of that in pretty much every sector and every industry. Yeah. Do you see that as a continued area of growth or do you see anything else coming in that may disrupt more? Uh, I'm not sure about seeing anything that's going to disrupt it more than AI because that's pretty big, right? Um, I, I'm not sure where it's going to go. I, I, there are a lot more people out in there in the world that are, are more learned than I am and they might have a, a an idea of where a, AI might take manufacturing. 
But what I do know is the doors have been opened now. Pandora's box has been opened and there there is no way back. I I think as long as uh, the people in those positions to have some sort of control over how much AI is used and what it's used for, because there are, you know, there's some really, really good um, things and benefits for AI, but it's like with anything else, there can be a dark side as well. Some of it is not going to be used for the right things. It's not going to be used for the right reasons. It will be used for bad rather than good. Um, so we it's do just like any tool, isn't it? That. It's only as it's only as good or as powerful as the, the hands that wield it. It it, it, it is. So, but I, I think it will help manufacturing over the over the longer term. It will help the planet. It will help us humans figure out better ways of doing things. I think. But it, it, outside of AI, you know, we've, we've, as I said earlier, we've got the, we've been on a journey of um, introducing automation and robotics for for a few decades now, but there's still so much that needs to be done on that. You know, we're still way behind a lot of the other advanced, you know, industrial nations. We are we are way way behind. So you know, coupled with the the fact that we that we do lack some skills, um, I I think. You know, there there needs to be a a, a bigger adoption of automation and, and robotics in manufacturing. Um, so there are a lots of opportunities there. A point you've mentioned several times is the lack of skills in the industry. How can we be attracting more young talent or fresh talent into manufacturing in the UK? Because that's that's surely got to be the key to any company's forward plans, any vision, or any any kind of uh, growth elements. Got to be some element of bringing in fresh blood. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'd always advise businesses to grow their own, you know, uh, wherever possible and, and grow as many as you can. Um, but in terms of how are we going to uh, how are we going to attract more people in it? That is a question that's cropped up on a daily basis um, with most of the people I've spoken to over the last <laughs> three or four years. Um, I think there's a number of issues there. Firstly, um, we talked about it earlier and, and that's the outdated uh, impression of manufacturing. You know, what do people yeah. perceive manufacturing as that's being tackled with that, you know, people um, there's a lot of great people in UK manufacturing. You see them on LinkedIn all the time. You're, you're sort of Andrea Wilson's of this world. you got the guys that make UK people like Mark Weymouth, Chris Greeno, loads of loads of people are helping to shout out about UK manufacturing and change these outdated ideas so that that's that's one of the ones is is getting the the parents of youngsters to actually understand what manufacturing is in the uk because that's half the battle because then you will get more parents maybe advocating that their that their kids consider a stem career rather than trying to put them off because there, there are so many people that will oh well, don't you, you want to do good at school because if you don't you'll end up in a factory what the hell is that about you know fact, factory workers get really really good money um it's more rewarding than probably you know working in a shop okay it might not be for everybody but um we need to educate the parents second thing is the schools i've never been a fan of schools i have to say for, since i was at school um but schools in my opinion um other opinions are of course also available but i i think that the schools <laughs> aren't doing anywhere near what they should to to help kids um, prepare for what comes after school. 
what what schools are going to be talking about manufacturing these days? You know, schools I think are more interested in their Ofsted results and their and the grades rather than um, you know being more holistic in terms of what options are available to kids. So I, I think the schools need a, a really big kick up the backside from the education secretary um, and and from industry. I think you know manufacturers. I think need to reach out and uh, you know collaborate with schools a little bit more. I know they do it, but they don't all do it, and there is a lot more to be done there. So I, th I think there's some bridge building there to be done. There's signposting to great careers. So we got the we got the parents, we got the schools, and I I think we need um, we need we need a few people to be ambassadors for manufacturing to the youngsters it's so good it, it, it's okay the likes of me you know a, a 53 year old who's who's got a few chins and gray hair to be to be bigging up manufacturing um but i think we need to we need to get down with the kids and we need to get some youngsters or some people you know probably a third of my age um out there we need some influencers on the on the on the scene don't we we need some people that have got good followings on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever it might be, um, kids that can represent youngsters a little bit more. Um, apprentices do a fantastic job of telling other youngsters about what they're doing with their apprenticeship, um, but they're probably wrapped up in you know they're they're, they're concentrating on their apprenticeship um, and they're they're in that learning process. What we need are some are some individuals that are that are prepared and motivated enough to put their neck on the block and go right i'm going to go out on a limb i'm going to promote uk manufacturing so my question is to the to the big wide world of of uh, of people out there in the uk at the moment who is going to be an influencer for uk manufacturing you know we need some uh, we need some people uh, that have left school that have gone into manufacturing um, and started a manufacturing career we need some 20 and 30 year olds who are later on down that path to then go look this is what i've done with my life since coming into uk manufacturing but these people need to be um they need to be comfortable with getting out there putting their face out there um and getting on all these platforms but they've got to have a passion for promoting it what we what we don't need are people that are just going to be taking selfies like all these bloody influencers everywhere you see them on the trains you see them when you go on holiday they're just oh, sucking up to the camera for the sake of it it's all about me 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 well we need some proper influencers for the right reason who are going to uh, you know build some bridges with the schools with the kids but people that aren't like my age or or, or even christopher's age chris beecham's 25 you know we need some people like that that have been through manufacturing, but we need some young, fresh-faced uh, teens, I guess, and people that have just left school or college with a personality that really want to, you know, maybe have a, a career in manufacturing, but also a secondary gig or a secondary career as a as a, a UK manufacturing influencer. Forget the likes of Greg Wallace. Uh, Inside the Factory is a great program, but he's not he's not what we need um we we need some youngsters really getting out there and and carrying that baton shining the torch leading the way in their own way i'm i'm not going to be great at communicating with with 18 year olds or or 14 year olds at school i'm too old 
I'm too old and crusty. My jokes aren't even funny. They're not even <laughs> funny to my own son, you know, and I'm always telling him I'm the, I'm the funniest man he's ever going to meet. It's not going to work. So we need, we need some youngsters that want, that have got that bit of, yeah, I'd love to be in front of the camera and tell people about this and that. And, but that, but that are also authentically passionate about manufacturing. That's what we need. What about the other end of the scale though? What about in government? Uh, well, I, you know, that's a drum that's been bashed for, you know, the last few years. Uh, I mentioned Andrea Wilson earlier, um, earlier mm. in the podcast. Um, we need a minister for manufacturing. Um, and this is something that Andrea has been uh, campaigning for, for the last two or three years. Um, Andrea, for anybody that doesn't know, is a director at Honal Precision down in Leighton Buzzard, which is a subcontract uh, machining business. But Andrea is is just so passionate about uk manufacturing i could probably reel off you know another dozen people that you will see on linkedin regularly uh that have got the same thoughts about you know smes in particular because they're 99 percent of the uh the the economy uh, in manufacturing it's all about smes we need to support them more there is support out there but it's not always the right type of support it's not signposted um but we do need uh, without being too political we do need a government, whoever's in government, and let's just talk about, you know, politicians in general, whether you're in cabinet or not. Open these, open your eyes to what's going on in manufacturing, please, Mr. and Mrs. Politicians. Um, UK manufacturing, you know, we're, we're, we're about 20 something percent of, of UK GDP. You know, we, we are we are great at exporting, but we can be doing so much more with the right support. So, you know, we need to be making things in this country because if 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 we didn't, you know, service industries, and we've seen this recently with Brexit and everything else, people can just, you know, now that the world's gone digital, you can pick up a service and plot that in another country halfway around the world. You can't do that with manufacturing. You know, we need products in the UK. If we were in a situation like those poor Ukrainians are at the moment where there's a war going on. If we're not making stuff here and we're an island, let's, let's all remember that the UK is an island. Okay. So if we were cut off, what are we going to do? If we can't make anything anymore because we've let industry just slump, the skills have been lost. How the hell are we going to survive? We'll probably forget to, to we'll, we'll forget the skills in terms of growing crops and, and raising Cattle, you know, everybody's anti-beef these days anyway, so we'll probably forget about cattle farming before much longer. But the point I'm making is we need to be more self-sufficient in the UK. So please, government and who else is is in the know and, and got the power to do things about it, support UK manufacturing because we need it as an, as an island, as an economy, as a country. We need it for jobs. We need it for people. What, what are people going to do? In, in 50 years time, just sit there in their houses, just on a laptop or through te te telekinesis or something. We need to be doing stuff. We need to be making stuff. You know, that's what humans do. So uh, yeah, I'm just rambling now because uh, you've got me on it now, John, you know where those nerve Beautiful. endings are and you've been, you've been tickling them, but you've, you've snapped one of them off now and I'm on it. So yeah. It's my own fault, Jeff. I did sales. I'm going to go easy on you. Um, I sort of pulled it into politics at the end. Yes. There is one other very serious question we need to cover. And this is this is this is kind of what our relationship's been built upon and our joint venture's been built upon. It's about honesty, it's about trust, and it's about should you have pineapple on pizza or not? 
Right. Okay. This, Take your time, this, Jeff. Take your time. Just this, don't this don't is, rush this one because this is quite important. This is the part of the podcast, as you say. It, this should be serious. I'm actually going to put my reading glasses yeah, on. Just glasses on, please. People don't normally see me like this. There we go. There you go. So, just so that I can look a little bit more serious. Uh, pineapple, whilst I like pineapple, I could eat pineapple on on a pizza. You shouldn't allow people to put pineapple on a pizza, but the demons pizza topping has got to be anchovy it's the devil's food i don't mind anchovy in a pasta sauce please stop putting fish on pizzas jeff i had a i had a bit of a, a tough experience earlier today i'm, I'm not gonna lie to you about it me by the way pizza pineapple I, I'm, I'm a fan i don't mind I, actually i'm actually i'm probably an advocate for it so i'm not on the fence i'm actually a straight up yes uh yeah someone had beans and peas i mean baked beans and peas delivered from their local pizzeria to their house last night absolute truth that's, a, that's one of my connections on linkedin how do you stand on beans baked beans and peas as the only toppings as well as cheese on, um, on, on pizza baked beans definitely no uh, I could probably eat a, a totally vegetarian pizza. You know, I love spinach. I like uh, rocket and things like that. Uh, you know, grilled courgettes. I, I could eat anything like that with some, you know, proper mozzarella on on a pizza. And in fact, I bet you if you went to uh, Naples, some of the best pizzas they would be making for you would be very little other than the pizza, the pizza bread itself, freshly made dough. Uh and then a bit of uh, marinara sauce. or tomato sauce. Yeah. And then a little bit of uh, a little bit of cheese, a little bit of mozzarella. There'll probably be hardly anything else on it. Little, little so, sprig of basil, just to just to finish it off. So you've got the colours of the ripped the off, not not cut. That's it. Tear it. <laughs> Nicely done. Well, look, we've covered a lot of ground today. We have um, insights for manufacturing. I think has has learned a lot about Jeff Beecham. Hopefully, that a little bit about pizza. And everything else in between. So this is uh, this is your host, John Cox, signing off with our special guest today, Jeff Beecham. Thank you for your time, Jeff. Thanks for joining us, John. It's been a pleasure.